Welcome. This is Legal Wise with Ted Eccles, a show dedicated to helping you find peace of mind through being well-informed and up-to-date. We want to help you defeat procrastination and provide information on legal matters that matter to you. I'm Ted Eccles, attorney, and you can reach us at LegalWiseGA.com. If you have a legal question, or particularly an estate planning question, go to our website and write to us. We try to address questions that you, our listeners, will find interesting and helpful. You can also join us as part of our free virtual estate planning workshops. To register, give us a call, 770-506-9092, or visit our website at LegalWiseGA.com. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. We've got a great lineup today. We'll be talking about the danger of transferring a business in a will closing cost and escrow, children drafting a will. We'll be discussing long-term care cost, how to draft a subpoena, and livestock thievery. And we've got a special interview today regarding insurance. So let's get started. Pete has a question. He says, my father passed away a few weeks ago owning a small business. He was the sole owner and the only officer. How do we continue his business? Well, Pete, I'm sorry for your loss. At Eccles Law Group, we help grieving family members every week, and we see the challenges and decisions folks in your position must address. There is no question that it can take a toll on your emotional and physical well-being. And you've identified a common situation when a person passes away owning an active business. Many times, the owner is the only person with the authority to sign checks, communicate with the IRS, and deal with insurance companies. In situations like this, you definitely want to talk with an experienced attorney as soon as possible to begin the probate process. If your father has a will, it will most likely designate a person called an executor who has the authority to make some decisions relating to the business once they're appointed by the court. But be prepared. There will likely be some delay in getting that person appointed. Thankfully, most customers, vendors, and other folks who interact with your dad's business will likely be graceful until a person is appointed. But stepping back and thinking about what sort of planning can be done relating to a business before someone passes away, there is an alternative to a will-based plan. Many business owners consider creating a living trust as part of their estate planning while they're alive. With the living trust, a business owner can actually transfer his business into the trust without giving up control of the business or the income earned by that business. The owner continues to act as the trustee of the trust while he or she is alive and doing well. When he or she becomes ill or dies, the business owner identifies in the trust another person called an alternate trustee, and that person has the authority to act without delay or pause if there's an illness or a death, and that allows the business to continue meeting its obligations and collecting the income. Pete, even if your father didn't create a trust, with the assistance of an experienced attorney, you can move forward with the probate process and get that executor in place. Thanks for the question. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. 
Nicole has a question. She says, I'm purchasing my first home and my lender has approved my loan. My contract requires that the seller pay closing costs. Despite that, in reviewing the settlement statement, I'm noticing that my escrow is over $1,000 and is being charged to me. What is the difference between closing cost and escrow expenses? Well, Nicole, congratulations on your house purchase. A settlement statement has numerous pages of numbers and allocations. Let's look at the two areas of charges that appear on the settlement statement that, you, that you've addressed in your question. Escrow charges are not fees. These charges include insurance for the property for a year and collection of a portion of the taxes that will be due on the property during the next year. After collecting a portion of these fees on the settlement statement, your monthly mortgage payment will include an additional charge for your escrow and these funds will be used to pay your insurance and taxes when they become due. Closing fees are different. These fees cover the appraisal, the title exam, the attorney's fees, recording costs, and other fees incurred relating to the documents being signed by you or otherwise required by your mortgage company. There is some question as to whether some loan-related fees and transfer tax are closing costs. The real estate contract establishes the responsibility of each party in all areas of the transaction, including closing costs, fees, taxes, and other things. As a buyer or seller, it is a good idea to have an attorney help in drafting that contract and spelling out in detail how all of these costs will be paid and by whom. Thanks for the good question, Nicole. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. We have a question from Michael. He says, I often read about the necessity of everyone having a will. Well, my 15-year-old has received a settlement from a car crash. Can she make a will? Well, Michael, everyone does need a will. A will is the document containing written instructions naming the person to manage the estate and designating who will receive the property. While Georgia requires that any substantial amount of property belonging to a minor child be held by a conservator for the child's benefit, our state nevertheless provides that any person 14 or older has the legal ability to write a will. A conservatorship is created in the probate court, where the judge determines who should look after the property of a minor. This situation often occurs where a child is injured in a car crash or other tort and receives a settlement. Generally speaking, if the child becomes entitled to receive $15,000 or more from an insurance settlement, that company will not even pay the proceeds to the child. A conservatorship is required and the company will pay the money to the conservator. This money belongs to the child, but it's managed by the conservator. So how does the idea of a will come into play? Well, if a minor child, or any person for that matter, passes away without a will, even if they're young, Georgia law determines who will receive their property. The process, called administering the estate, is quite expensive and requires regular filings with the court. Most people, including younger property owners, 
prefer to decide who will receive their assets rather than simply letting Georgia law dictate the outcome. Sometimes a young person will want their parents to receive their property, but other times it may be their siblings. So Michael, even your daughter who's 15 has the ability under Georgia law to make a will. Thanks for the question. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. Hey, we have a special guest with us today on Legal Wise with Ted Eccles, Morgan Tab. He's with Tab Insurance Agency as their vice president. He's a Georgia Southern guy with business management. And we have so many questions to deal with liability and property and business. I thought it would be good for us to, to uh, bring in an expert in insurance to help us address some important questions about our property and liability insurance. So welcome, Morgan. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to talking more with you about all this. Well, thanks for being with us. When thinking about insurance, I found that a lot of people are under the mistaken impression that if they buy liability insurance, that they're transferring their liability to the insurance company. But that may not be the case. Tell us how insurance actually works. Well, to a degree, you are transferring some of your risk to an insurer, but not all of it. You know, essentially what an insurance policy is, is a contract. And it's going to outline the duties of both parties and, and what is covered and what is not. So a lot of people are mistaken thinking that if they have insurance or even the, that term full coverage, that they're covered for everything. But there are exclusions in a policy. So it's important to work with a professional that knows this and can guide you through a policy or simply to read the policy yourself. Um, I would highly encourage everyone to work with an independent agent just because they've got a broad spectrum of products that they work with day in and day out and are generally going to be more versed on the language of various policies and can help you choose the right one. In the, there we have a lot of listeners who, are, who own their own business or they're in the construction industry. What are some insurance products that they should be thinking about and considering to make sure that they're protected as they go out there and try to earn a living? Well, you know, as we were talking about the umbrella, a commercial umbrella is, is great. Uh, that is going to require, though, underlying policies, uh, general liability, uh, employer's liability, which is part of a worker's compensation policy. Um, if I had to boil it down to just one policy that someone in the construction industry should purchase, it would probably be worker's compensation. If they have employees or even subcontractors that they're directing and telling them when to be at the job site and what to do, and they're paying them for that, even if they're a subcontractor, that's a pretty clear line that that person's employed by you. Um, so workers' compensation is a key one. General liability is a good one. That's going to protect the insured from bodily injury or property damage claims that, that someone is alleging. Even if, even if it's a, a frivolous claim, too, is what a lot of people don't understand is that the insurance policy, if you're served a suit and 
it's just an alleged claim and you think it's frivolous, the insurance company is going to appoint you an attorney and defend you until they determine who's actually liable for those damages. Yeah, you mentioned workers' comp. I um, remember a few years ago, someone had called and they're a homeowner and they had some guys working on their roof and one of the guys got hurt up there. And the next thing he knew, he was being sued by the by the worker, and he was just the homeowner. He didn't uh, and hired somebody to do some roof work. What is is what should the homeowner look for and ask for from the from anybody that's showing up to work on their property? Get a certificate of insurance. Uh, that is no problem to get if the contractor or whoever it may be is hesitant to provide you that or says, oh, my agent charges for them, that's hogwash, walk away from that situation. Uh, a certificate of insurance can be provided within minutes if there's a quality agent involved. So get a certificate of insurance. And then if you really are good, you can ask to be listed as an additional insured under that contractor's policy which is going to give you some benefit uh, under that policy. If you're as the homeowner homeowner named in the suit as well, just by virtue of being the landowner um, due to some sort of negligent activity, the contractor um, was involved in or, or you know, they created some sort of problem. Insurance is one of those things that, that we all have to have, whether it's for our car, our home, our business, I'll just be honest, Morgan. It seems like my insurance is always going up. What is the explanation for that? And why does it keep the price of it monthly keep going up? Yeah. Boy, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that. Um, it, it, people need to understand that, that insurance is a mechanism of spreading the risk. So it's, it's a way for everybody to pay in just a little bit. So in the event that someone has a large loss, there's a pool of money there to pay out. Um, and with the cost of materials, you know, for homeowners increasing, uh, you know, we just came off of one of the most active hurricane seasons in 2020. Um, the cost of healthcare is rising. So medical treatments are going up, um, and the technology and vehicles are advancing. You know, the cost of an F-150 today is more than it was 10 years ago. Um, all that stuff plays into insurance rates and what insurance companies are trying to do is collect enough premium so that they can pay out all their claims and then still have some left over at the end of the day to run a profitable business. And that's essentially why your um, rates are going up is, is those factors I mentioned. Uh, individually, there are some things that you can do to help mitigate that. You know, pay attention to your credit. Don't let your credit score tank. Don't be irresponsible with that. Uh, that is a big factor in rates these days. Um, notify your agent if you replace your roof that will likely generate a return premium um and you know you could go even as far as get involved with an insurance company that uses telematics where they're you know monitoring your driving now and 
rewarding you for uh, safe, safe driving habits. If we've got some, some parents out there listening, which I'm sure we do, who have some young drivers in their family, what can they do to help minimize the cost of providing insurance on those vehicles that those kids are driving? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll preface it with saying just regardless of what you do, be prepared for a significant increase in your premium. You know, a 16-year-old driver is not the same as a 46-year-old driver. No matter how much, you know, they claim to be a good driver. It's just the, the data shows otherwise. Right. Um, don't put that child in a brand new car. Buy a 2002 Honda Civic and insure it for liability only. You have adequate limits of liability, but buy something that you don't have to insure for physical damage, you know, that you don't have to put collision and comprehensive on. Um, encourage them to do well in school so you can get that good student discount. Uh, put them through a course, a defensive driving course. Insurance companies usually want to see a 30-hour in-class course with six hours of drive time, and they'll give you that credit. Um, set up a reward system for your child. You know, reward them for, you know, if they go 12 months without any sort of incident. You know, reward good behavior. Um, I didn't get my license until I was 18. Um, you know, my father being in the insurance industry, I'm sure he knew that those two extra years might help his premium some. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I uh, wish we had more time. But if listeners have other questions that they want to ask about insurance, can they contact you and how would they do it? Absolutely. And I would welcome the call. Um, so it's the TAB Insurance Agency. We're in Conyers, Georgia. Uh, we've got a website. You can find us um, at tabinsurance.com. Uh, you can call us at 770-483-1800. And my personal extension is 32. And then I've got an email address as well. It's morgantab at tabinsurance.com. Okay, well, thank you for joining us today on Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. I feel like you provided some great information for our listeners. Thank you, Ted. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. The Georgia Supreme Court has recently addressed a fascinating case. Here's a summary of the facts as reported by the court. A man named Michael went outside his house to take his dog, whose name was Katie, for a walk on a leash. As Michael and Katie were walking in front of his house, a dog, the court notes that the dog's name is Tucker, attacked and killed Michael's dog, Katie. Compounding the situation, as Michael was carrying his dog back into his home, Tucker followed him into his house and attacked Michael, seriously injuring him. According to the court's opinion, Tucker had escaped from his owner's fence and was running around in the neighborhood without a leash and not under the control of his owner. All of this was in violation of the county leash law. There is no question these facts present a horrible and tragic situation. The question before the court is whether the owner of the dog that attacked Katie and her owner are liable for their injuries and damages. Well, under common law, before a victim could recover for a dog bite, he had to prove that the animal was vicious and that the owner 
had actual knowledge that the animal was in fact a vicious dog. In fact, previous courts had declared that dogs are generally a harmless species and it must be proven that they're vicious. Well, evidently, things have changed in Georgia. Georgia has a statute that says an animal running at large in violation of a leash law is by definition vicious. As you might have guessed, the reason this case made it to the Supreme Court is that the owner of Tucker asked the Supreme Court to declare that the statute violates due process because they're not given the opportunity to show that the dog is not vicious or that they knew that the dog was vicious. Well, in this case, the Supreme Court says that the statute is constitutional and does not violate the due process clause. So Tucker is vicious because he was running around the neighborhood in violation of the leash law. So if you own a dog, or any pet for that matter, and you live in a county or city that has a leash law, be aware. If your pet is out running around without a leash and not under your control and injures someone, it appears that your animal is declared to be vicious, even if it's never hurt anyone before. In addition to the ordinance violation penalties, you're likely to be held responsible for any injuries that result. An interesting case from our Supreme Court. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. Kim has a question for Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. She says, My mom is 62, and since my father has passed away, my mom's asking me to help her with some planning decisions. And looking on the internet, I've read about long term care insurance. Because my mom has limited funds, can I purchase the long-term care insurance for her? And is it a good idea? Well, Kim, it's wise that your mom is wanting to do some planning and is thinking about these important topics. Accepting the fact that long-term care is a possibility in your life is a great first step in moving forward with planning for it. Long-term care, including nursing home care, is one of the largest expenses an older person experiences in the later years. It's estimated that nursing home care, if you're privately paying for it, costs an average of $8,000 per month. Starting now to determine how you plan on paying for this expense is an important part of estate planning. You mentioned long-term care insurance, and that's a good way to cover these costs. However, many people may not qualify because of their age or their health condition. For your mom, Kim, at age 62, she may very well be eligible based on her age if she meets the company's health criteria. But look out, long-term care insurance can be quite expensive. Some people in your mom's position who don't want to use their current income or assets to pay the long-term care premiums associated with that insurance, develop a plan to adjust their assets so that they'll be eligible for Medicaid to pay for their long-term care when it's needed. But you know, this plan isn't for everyone. Medicaid does not provide coverage for other options for long-term care assistance that might be covered by long-term care insurance. For example, under some policies, assisted living and in-home assistance may be covered and that's not available under Medicaid. Having these options may be more attractive to your mother and to you than simply waiting for Medicaid. 
Therefore, you may want to explore the cost of long-term care policies for your mother and then make the decision of its value compared to what you may be able to achieve with Medicaid planning. I suggest that you and your mother consult with an experienced estate planning lawyer to provide additional guidance as you move forward with this important planning. Great question, Kim. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. Sherrit, a law student, has a question. How do I draft a subpoena? Well, Sherrit, thanks for the question. Subpoenas are tools most commonly used in litigation to obtain evidence, usually testimony, documents, or tangible objects from non-parties to the action. For example, you can use a subpoena to obtain records from a bank, a hospital, or a supplier when they're not a party to the litigation. In contrast, the evidence-gathering process, called discovery, between parties in the litigation includes questions, referred to as interrogatories, requests for documents, requests for admissions, and depositions. But back to the subpoena. It is supported by the court's compulsory power. However, it's typically initiated and prepared by one of the parties and then signed by the court and then delivered to the non-party. Under certain circumstances, the party seeking the subpoena may have to pay a reimbursement fee to the non-party for producing the document or traveling to court to testify. The subpoena must be carefully crafted with sufficient detail to properly identify the documents being sought. Be prepared. The responding party may have an attorney who will scrutinize the subpoena looking for ways to avoid having to respond to it. And here's another word of caution. If documents are going to be presented as evidence at trial, there are numerous rules that must be satisfied, including authentication, relevance, and establishing a proper foundation. All parties, even if they don't have an attorney, are expected to comply with the law regarding presenting documents and testimony. Thanks for the question, Sherrit. If you have a question, visit LegalWiseGA.com. A few years ago, I joined a team from my church on a mission trip to the country of Panama. While we were there, we walked the streets of small communities in the interior of the country and visited with residents sharing copies of the Gospel of John from the Bible. Many residents owned a few chickens, and some even had several birds in their flock. In making conversation with the friendly Panamanians, we learned that occasionally a chicken would go missing because of their neighbor's dog or sometimes because someone would steal their chicken. For most of the folks we talked with, they simply accepted the occasional loss as part of life in Panama. Well, as part of my growing up, my parents made sure I was given the opportunity to own and care for a few chickens. I'd collect the eggs and sometimes even sell them. So here in Georgia, what protections do we have for our livestock? Well, under Georgia law, we have a statute that specifically addresses livestock theft. Livestock includes horses, cows, goats, and other animals raised for human consumption. Unless the value of the animal or animals is less than $100, the theft of livestock is considered a felony and carries a pretty stiff fine and jail time. So in Georgia, livestock theft is very serious. 
Well, while the Panamanians were a little more forgiving of the occasional taking of their chickens by their neighbor, when I pressed them and asked how they would respond if their neighbor was getting fat off of their chickens, they responded with much less grace and suggested action must be taken. Most of the small farms or tracts of land in Georgia have one or two small animals in the yard with most of the animals referred to by name. Unlike the Panamanians, I'm confident that folks around here will not tolerate any wrongful appropriation of their livestock pets. Thanks for listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. You've been listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or want more information, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com or give us a call, 770-506-9092. While legal advice can help, we know that true peace is found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us next week as we answer more interesting questions from listeners just like you. The information... Comments and opinions expressed in Legal Wise with Ted Eccles do not constitute legal advice. The topics discussed and opinions given are general in nature and not intended to create any legal relationship or opinion about specific circumstances. No attorney-client relationship has been or will be formed by any communication or legal discussion, and no representation is made regarding your particular legal rights. For legal advice, contact an attorney actively practicing in your jurisdiction.